Welcome to the Change Healthcare Podcast. On today's show, everything you need to know about healthcare interoperability, where the industry is today, where it's going, what's new, what's coming, and most important, what we all need to know and do to participate. And now, here's Nicole Antonson, Change Healthcare's VP of Identity and Commonwealth Services, with our very special guests, Jitin Esnani, Executive Director of Commonwealth Health Alliance, and Kashif Rathor, Vice President of Interoperability at Cerner. And now, here's Nicole. Hello, and welcome to our first podcast on interoperability. I'm Nicole Antonson, I'm Vice President of Identity and Commonwealth Services at Change Healthcare. Change is a service provider to the Commonwealth Health Alliance, and I've spent the last 20 years focused on delivering payer EHR analytic and data platform solutions. And today, I am excited to facilitate our podcast on interoperability. During this podcast, we're going to spotlight not only on interoperability, but also the impacts that networks such as Conwell have on helping organizations reach their interoperability goals. Before we get started, I want to first introduce our guest speakers. We have Jitin Asnani as the Executive Director of Commonwealth since 2015. And Jitin, would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure, absolutely. Thank you for having me here on the podcast. So uh, yes, I'm Jonathan Snani. I'm Executive Director of Commonwealth Health Alliance. I've had the pleasure and the honor of leading the alliance since uh, that, you know, since April 2015. But I've been involved with the alliance since its inception, back when I worked at Athena Health and product management. Uh, you know, it was obviously an integral part of the alliance from that from that very, very beginning. But even before that, I worked at the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT. And, you know, when we were there at the Office of National Coordinator, it was always our hope that industry would kind of take hold of the interoperability story and really drive the industry forward. And, you know, thrilled that a few years after my my stint there at the ONC that uh, I was part of, uh, you know, helping create such a great organization. So, again, thank you so much for having me here. I'm really happy to uh, contribute to the discussion. Yes, it's great to have this discussion. Thank you for joining. So, Kashif Rathor is our second guest speaker, and I feel like, Kasha, if you're a rock star in interoperability, not only from our past that I've known you from thought leadership standpoint, but also in how you've been able to drive deployment across Cerner's organizations to share records between providers. So would you tell us a little bit more about your background and give me an introduction? Thank you, Nicole. Uh, thanks for having me. My name is Kashif Rathor. I am a vice president, uh, focused, responsible for interoperability at Cerner, uh, and I've been in the industry for uh, 21 years now. Mostly I came out, I was a fresh graduate into the healthcare industry and have been a student of this industry ever since. I've served in different capacities and different roles, a lot of client-facing roles in the Cerner's consulting branch, initially installing systems. And I often saw this challenge of integration and not having the records uh, and access to data uh, just was a big problem. And then I got the opportunity within Cerner to actually lead some of these efforts, and I took on that and have been uh, working on different type of aspects of uh, interoperability use cases for the last uh, almost a decade now with yourself, Jitin, and other industry leaders and uh, hoping for uh, the best outcomes for this industry and the citizens of this country here soon, hopefully. 
I love the the wording you chose is kind of a student of interoperability. And I think we're all learning and as we move through it and, and try to make advances. And we learn as we make advances of new use cases. So it's really great. Kashif, so the first one is I know you've been in interoperability for 20 years. What was it like in the beginning of your career? And how has it changed today? <laughs> it's it's definitely has been a journey. You know, you take a student out of Oklahoma and you put them in this healthcare industry. Who's, you know, when you're young, you, you hardly go to the doctor's office, so you barely know the processes, let alone to know what's broken in the in the care system and the, and is it working efficiently or not. I mean, you just feel that you're healthy as a horse, and you, you know everything is great. So you know, it, it the history of this interop journey. It's a long history. There's a lot of evolution I think the industry should take the credit for, as well as a lot of work that needs to still continue to occur uh, to make this into more into a turnkey. And I may use this turnkey uh, actually quite frequently in today's uh, conversation among us. Uh, so, you know, it kind of, in my opinion, started out in late 80s, 90s, uh, early 90s, when uh, with the inception of HL7 in the adoption of that um, standard, the folks started to exchange information back and forth. You know, it was more in the interdepartmental sort of utilities, like I've got a lab system and I got to connect to my registration billing. And, you know, they used a standard and then there's some non-standard things, which always kept this B2B engagement a little complicated. You know, that soon started to evolve into, you know, this one quick story on, in 2001, 2002, when a client, I was on a site, and the client came to me and said, hey, you're the interface interoperability guy. Can you can you tell me what this CCD is? And uh, my impression was a CCD what? Uh, they Just the concept had, had popped up, and folks were starting to talk about early 2000s on, hey, if we had uh, a payload, a, con- a, a transaction, or some type of uh, envelope where we could include all the patient's information and be able to share it back and forth that might actually solve a lot of these challenges that we have in the in the pure b2b hl7 type of interfaces where we gotta have a lot of agreements and man up and power to go make that connection happen i could just probably go into how that markets and those those concepts evolved but i mean in if you look at like high level aspects in the early 2000s we had a client up in north indiana area in the south bend region they, they started to build an hie type of thing where um, in you know and you saw that trend just evolve into the hies some saw that successful some saw that challenging then came 2008 and and the direct started to be the secure provider to provider communication soon after in the 2013 the inception of Commonwealth happened and this concept of networks to say, hey, we need this common governance model and ability to share and not have to worry about a lot of logistics uh, would be ideal. And followed by care quality, then the, the Argonauts and, and the fire um, in that project Argonaut funding in 2014-ish timeframe. And soon then people started to get through this concept of, hey, if we connect all the networks, we could have a network effect that gives the citizens across the country really a unique ability to have their records to be shared without any boundaries, um, which um, is the ultimate goal here. 
and then there's some patient-led initiatives you guys are well familiar with, like Canon Alliance and others, to say how do we engage the patient. The, the API integration work we did as per the meaningful use to bring patient into this conversation. And I think in the future, it's already here, but probably going to extend into a great degree of how do we get the payer in. So, you know, patient to the provider, to the, the person who's reimbursing, paying, and then the preventive care, how we get into the population health management aspects um, is really a sort of, in my opinion, a closed loop where if I show up in a hospital or or a doctor's office as a, and a ill patient, um, I want that experience to be great, seamless, flawless, and not me having to worry about it. Um, so I think the History is rich, <laughs> I think. Uh, we have a lot to build upon. The future is very bright. Um, and I think we are at the sort of the turn of the leap now where this is going to start to become uh, in the next few years uh, a much less of a frictionable problem. No, I, I agree with that. And you know, the thing is you mentioned the closing the loop, um, you know, establishing that closed loop drives efficiency of how we share records, but I think it also then enables us to have that shared decision-making or enables providers and payers have shared decision-making to you know, drive outcomes and decrease costs. So um, I couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely. My next question is for you, Jin. So I was thinking, Calm was founded six years ago. Why? What was the guiding principle at the time? What really drove the creation of Commonwealth? Yeah, you know, you could you could look back at sort of anything that was occurring today and, you know, just as, you know, Kashif painted this rich tapestry of events that has unfolded over the last couple of decades to get us to where we are. You, you could you could certainly pick a number of points along that, you know, along that continuum that can eventually led to the uh, the founding of Commonwealth. But in, in my mind, what really crystallized the need for the alliance and its you know, subsequent creation was actually meaning for you stage two. You know, meaning for you stage two, uh, it was actually one of two big things that happened uh, in that time frame, you know, that time period between 2012 and 2014 that that almost you could almost predict if you, you know, you use disruption theory or some other good model for prediction that something like Commonwealth had to evolve. Um, the first thing is that, you know, stage two itself put in place um, a certain core components of interoperability that were now going to be built into every EHR, right? For the first time, there was a single standard nationally for the formatting and capturing of the clinical chart. That's a CCDA. Not the world's best standard, um, but it, it was a first, for the first time, there was a single standard and a basis for continued improvement and iteration on the format and content available for sharing among provider organizations primarily and other types of organizations interested in clinical care. The second thing that Meaningful Use did was also put in this notion of the transport layer. Um, it didn't talk about query retrieve, but it talked about and certainly gave directions on the use of push-based messaging, what's called the direct project. And there were strong indications from ONC at that time as they released Meaningful Use Stage 2 that further stages were going to go further into the different types of transport, including query retrieve, which became the transport layer, the transport mode, really, that Commonwealth started with. In parallel to this, there was a separate secular driving force for the industry, and that was this notion of accountable care. 
And the fact that as we moved more and more into value-based payments, payments that depended not on individual services rendered, what's called fee-for-service, but in the uh, larger realm of getting paid for taking care of patients and populations, the reality is interoperability was just becoming table stakes. So where, you know, you know, if you rewind five years, 10 years behind, uh, you know, behind us from where we are today, it was an opportunity to build and sell an innovation every time you created an interface. At the time that we started getting into value-based payments, it was no longer an innovation. It was required to be in the business of providing an EHR. And, you know, so it was with that, it was with that, that realization that that was where the world was going and the acknowledgement that if we as an industry do not step in and create a model, a working, functioning, actively deployed model for being able to look for uh, and assimilate, look for, find, pull in and assimilate a patient's record, that the you know, federal government will have no choice but to try to push that upon us. And neither did they really want to do that, nor would they be particularly good at it nor would we as an industry, and you know, at that time I was part of the industry as, as an, an, you know, at an EHR vendor, you know, we, we wouldn't want to be subjugated to that. So that's really in my mind what kind of came together and helped us to realize that uh, we needed to create something like Commonwealth. The last ingredient, you know, if, if these two are practical ingredients, you know, things which you needed, enabling technologies, interrupt technologies, secular forces that were driving you in the direction of more interoperability, there's still an element of magic that is probably missing before you can actually come together and build something that really lasts and especially crosses the boundaries between you know, active competitors, which is what Commonwealth is made of, right? Active EHR competitors. And I think that piece of magic that came to bear was this notion around the individual, around the person, around the fact that each and every single one of us is somebody or knows somebody, somebody probably close and dear to us that suffers because of our day jobs. Because even as EHR vendors, if you're not able to exchange data with each other, somewhere someone, probably someone in our own families is suffering because they're, as they're getting care, they don't care that they're using EHRX or EHRY or that's what their providers are using. They're getting care because they are sick. And it behooves us to you know, bring forward what we can in terms of our energy and our ability to help them to be better. It, the, the person who best crystallized this, and you know, at least for me, and I'm sure you know, every person has their own story, but for me, it was, it was actually the, the founder of Cerner, as it turns out, Neil Patterson, and the story about his wife and what she went through in, the, you know, in trying to obtain care. Um, like Kashif, uh, you know, 20-year-old, 30-year-old, you know, now almost 40-year-old, I don't actually spend a whole lot of time at the doctor myself. But now, you know, over time, I've met more and more people. Um, starting with Neil's wife, probably, but kind of opened my eyes to more and more people who suffer because this type of interoperability has not existed. And so, you know, with that sort of touch of actual humanity, in addition to the business and regulatory forces that started coming together again in that sort of 2012 timeframe, that really for me is what led to a group of competitors to say, let's, let's sit down and uh, let's figure out a way to interoperate and put the person at the center of it. And, uh, you know, we'll figure the rest out. We will, <laughs> we will, we will figure out what steps to, what steps need to be taken to get across that line. What we know is that it's doable and we have the will and the means to be able to do it. And uh, 
you know, Nicole, that's how I think about why Commonwealth came about, how Commonwealth came about, uh, and the rest of it is kind of mechanics. Mm-hmm. No, it's wonderful. Yeah, I think that Commonwealth really helps establish that foundation that then enables other use cases to build upon it so that you can more easily understand the care provided to Neil's wife and what is the best next step because you had that history. Commonwealth has really established that foundation and it then allows the EHRs or other members who use Commonwealth to build on top of it. So I'm certainly thankful for Commonwealth. And I think where it hit home, I was at a party this past December and a physician asked me what I did. And I told her about Commonwealth and she said, oh my gosh, I live in Vail. I work out of Vail, Colorado, and I get patients from all over the country. And if it weren't for Commonwealth, I would not know their history. She was an endocrinologist. So that history was really important. So yeah, I think Commonwealth is, is really serving those patients and providers well. It's really exciting to see. Kasha, started as a founding member of Commonwealth, what was the deciding factor to becoming a member? As Jidden alluded to, I kind of stole a little bit of my thunder uh, with that example. But that's Oops, okay. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry You're about good. that. <laughs> the, the, you know, the actually, absolutely, Sunner is a founding member of Commonwealth Health Alliance. And uh, the gentleman, um, the, the previous CEO that, who passed away, was a, in, was a real big advocate of um, uh, really exchanging information and making the patient experience better. And you know, that comes his wife's example, who was uh, a cancer patient and went across the country to seek care. And they, they, they had a story about how difficult it was to patient, uh, for the patient to seek the, the care they needed and having to carry all these records and knowing all the medication lists and those things just was, you know, was not possible for the family and with the patient to be focused on that. Um, primarily, that was probably the overarching big reason that he wanted to solve this for the industry, for all, all Americans included. And, you know, they, I was, we were given a charter that solve it here, solve it in the global places where wherever there's a patient or a person, we need to make sure that we provide them this service because we can, we, we can enable in our platforms and software the ability for people to get their uh, records exchanged. So it, it, there were some other industry factors that, that just kind of were evolving. You know, the disparity in industry had many HIEs. You probably recall this, that it, there was some sort of public state fundings that inspired a lot of regional state type of HIEs in that era. Um, and we were seeing that quickly, that the cost to connect were too high, the labor was extensive, and there wasn't a sustainable business model to, after the post, the grants ran out, how would we make sure that we still provide that utility to the local populations that do depend on those uh, HIEs? So, uh, you know, it, it, the standards were not followed properly. There were some standards, but it was just kind of um, hodgepodge of certain things. And then the governance part was really non-existent. Imagine having like two contract between two to 300 different entities to exchange data and then do it all over again for a different client. It just wasn't scalable. Uh, so in, in there were some EHRs, you could say, that were providing that uh, interoperability uh, perspective to their clients and fixing some of the use cases um, in some w- between themselves and outside. Then there were some vendors who were doing more of a thing called interoperability that between 
my own utilities, it's great. Otherwise, we won't share. So, you know, that kind of gives you a good sketch of the landscape, why part. And then we, we thought collectively, I know your organization was a uh, was a founder as well, and uh, and some few others in the industry who were really kind of uh, out of the box thinkers to take uh, take this challenge as more of the uh, industry challenge and step up and and maybe do a, a bigger service that then the regulation and the federal and the other entities will follow. Uh, so we could share the records for patients, make it cost effective where people don't have to spend a lot of time and energy and make it into the workflow where they don't have to go seeking information. It's kind of given to them. So kind of has a follow-up theme of do it simply, give them the right patient information at the right time, give them the map of patients where the patients could have been and, you know, at least start there and then we will hopefully accelerate from there. And I'm happy to say today we are actually doing all those things and, and making a huge impact and also thinking additional use cases. So, yeah, I mean, Sutner's motivation was to um, work with people that we had on compete with otherwise, you know, in the industry to bring them to the table and solve it for the citizens of the country, citizens or the patients that do deserve this better. I mean, that was the reason McKesson at the time, now now we're Change Healthcare, made the investment. And what do you say all the time, Jim? I, I say a lot of things all the time. No. I spend a good bit of time talking. What do I say? Oh, um, goodness. Doing it for the common good is certainly common our, our tagline. Yes. <laughs> all right. Building off, Kasha, after your last answer that you just had, it kind of ties into why should provider organizations pay attention? What was, you know, it's one thing for Cerner to latch on and be a founding member, but it's another thing that you had to convince your your customers to latch on and and why implement Commonwealth? Why did they do it? I think you alluded to some of the, uh, an example uh, in your experience. And actually you've got an example for, for a colleague of mine who's been suffering with a flu-like type of thing and for the last few weeks and uh, has been given me an update to say, hey, I'll be in the office, but I can't this week because I'm still cough and other things and not been able to just be in the work setup. And um, so last night, that person sent me a note saying, um, the I've been to four specialists and none of them have records. They fax all the time, the paper. And it's like every time I go from spot A to B, I am printing my records and I'm taking them with me because this person works for an EHR company, right? And they still can't make much sense out of it. So he's like, I am kind of concerned that I'm going to get through this process and how am I going to get through this process? This is the patient's experience, a patient who's educated in, in our, some of our care delivery process as well as the what the providers need. I mean, this person has a good read. And at the end, he closed his comment by saying this, that, um, you know, we have, this is, our system's really fragmented. We have the opportunity, let's fix it. So from provider's perspective, and I've had several examples on providers where they, the doc's uh, looking at a patient who's unconscious and is, able, is ready to administer certain medications and all of a sudden realizes like, well, I've got this data view, you know, people like kind of rave about it. Maybe I should go look at it uh, before I, I give him this dose of XYZ. In, in happens to look in the uh, record and sees that this person's uh, 
cancer patient has a lot of medications and this medication he was trying to administer or was going to could have caused some type of a complication or adverse reaction. So it changes the course of, of course, is you know, care process, comes out screaming from the uh, hospital saying, hey, look, I almost would have gotten into a oh no moment um, by not having access to this information. It is extremely critical for providers to keep the variance and the cost low, not have to repeat the tests. I mean, there's several examples where this is very essential where the patient's records are. Patients, this is an extreme case where patient is unconscious. Uh, but there, there are other cases where I, my children have gone from a care setting in town to another care setting. And when we ask them, like, hey, we had certain so-and-so, and did you get the lab results? Is there anything to, to be concerned, you know, on a five-year-old? And the answer you might see or get is, well, we have not gotten the, the labs we could order another test, right? If you look at it and quantify that, that's a, that's a challenge on the provider. That's a challenge on the patient and on the overall system who's going to pay for the same test on something not very critical, benign sort of thing, but we're just duplicating that care process. So providers have really, um, in order to provide best care, need this contextual awareness of the information coming in and letting them know that, hey, this person may be allergic to betadine. My wife is allergic to betadine, having a child, you know how you go through that epidural process. The only thing we want to make sure is that you care on the delivery and focus there, not focus on causing somebody an adverse allergic reaction and having to focus on the allergy problem. So I, I think that, that that's, a, that's a big deal to make sure we get the information to these providers. Um, there, there's real life studies that we know that, that have been talked about for, for several years now. And, and then you're uh, in the last year or so realizing that the provider burden on burnout because of the lack of information, as well as maybe having to document too much stuff because we're repeating these processes, we can help actually um, you know, mitigate some of that, that pain point by giving them access to different records that are documented elsewhere so they don't have to reinvent the wheel at times. Uh, by giving them information that they don't have to spend 10 minutes reading by, by a cleaner data set, that's more useful. So I think there's several benefits. Uh, at the moment, as I described in my example, the paper faxes are still used frequently and the citizens the providers are suffering because of the fragmented system. And it's costing the providers and the patients and the system holistically a lot of money and effort that is unnecessary. Kashif, and, and maybe actually for Jitin too, what do you guys see as the greatest barriers for providers to implement a common law solution? You want me to go first, Jitin? Yeah, sure. Why don't you why don't you go first? You're you're a little closer to the providers and I'll provide my perspective on top. Um, I, 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 at the moment, I see, Nicole, mostly the timing uh, and just some of the ability from, from their software technologies to just be able to connect or latch onto a network. Uh, we've, we've made, and I think Jidin might be closer to describe how much progress we've made in quantifiable sort of numbers that we can probably rattle off, but if from from zero to 60 in, in the last, or 80 in the last two, three years, uh, we got 
so over 100 million I didn't actually i'm gonna leave the stats on to you because i think i might misquote uh, but I, I, <laughs> we've got we've got we've got some 14 1500 facilities that are just certain facilities in the last couple of years that have onboarded um onto commonwealth uh, but generally it was just the battling with the regulatory um check boxes that are on their plate and all these variability in the industry on some of the regulation they're going to keep up and it's not just about data and interoperability and, and systems but it's also the administrative stuff and the, those burdens balancing those has been a little bit of a, of a challenge some i could say there's a software support just kind of turning the key on or the switch on has been a little bit of a, a timing thing but i don't particularly see if they, the providers using an EHR or some type of a software that supports the connectivity and is able to offer that up, um, really any barriers that are uh, and or should be preventing them from, from onboarding or connecting to Commonwealth or a network uh, in that sense. Yeah, and I'll, I'll layer on top of that. I agree with everything with, uh, that uh, Kashif articulated there. Um, you know, what I'll add on top of that is, actually, I thought, Kashif, you're going to use the word you introduced earlier in the conversation, which I really liked, which is turnkey. Um, the, one of the challenges has been, uh, has, make, has been making Commonwealth turnkey for the provider. And actually, I would say that our members have done a really good job. You know, if you look at what Cerner has done or what have any of our ambulatory or even other acute care vendors have done, um, it's, 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 it always starts off just a tiny bit clunky and it gets less clunky until it's completely turnkey. But it, 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 gets, pretty, it gets turnkey pretty quickly. The issue is that, you know, the way Commonwealth was created, we, you know, we decided that we were going to go through vendors. And I think that's still the right model because at the end of the day, interoperability is a piece of feature functionality that's really important, but still just a part of the clinical experience that is delivered by the health IT platform, right? The EHR or other HIT platform or app that the user utilizes. So we did the right thing by saying here, we're, we want to plug into those platforms such that the user gets the benefit of the complete experience through their vendor. And, you know, their HIT platform is really the one who knows what, it, what kind of experience is going to jive with this user, what other jobs is that user trying to accomplish, of which interoperability is either a part or, you know, an enabler. The trade-offs there is that um, it's, it takes some work to get the vendors themselves to connect and to be a part of this. And so there's a couple of layers that need to be peeled before you get to the final provider. But uh, the beautiful part is once you are there, once it's built into our product, you know, I was having a conversation uh, this morning, for example, where I pointed out to somebody that, you know, you, there is no version of Cerner Millennium or some of the other top EHR products by, you know, 11 out of the top 20 EHR vendors out there. There's no version of those companies' products that does not include Commonwealth. It is there. It is turnkey. It is built in. Uh, the question of whether you turn it on or off is, you know, is up to you, but it is there in your product. And that's, that's the beauty of the way Commonwealth has approached things. The barriers now in that world, you know, assuming that you've gone into the EHR vendor or the HIT platform, really bifurcate depending on where in the market the provider organization sits. You know, the larger sophisticated provider organizations 
they can turn it on, but they have a lot of sophistication. And sometimes that sophistication leads them to go down a path of anal and analyzing all the various different options and taking their time to get across the line. They eventually do get across the line, but it's, it's not overnight. You know, they look at what are my other options here? How are things like privacy and security and consent and all these really important things that we've thought through quite deeply? You know, how are these things managed? And how is this different from what we do today? And what does this mean for us as a provider organization? What does this mean for our clinicians? What does this mean from an administrative perspective? They go through that whole analysis and it takes a while. On the other end of the market, if you look at all the small provider organizations, you know, these are mom and pop clinics to the small IPAs or even the larger IPAs, they have a different issue. Their issue is awareness. They don't have people who are even familiar with these terms. And if they see these terms, unless there's a payment code attached to it or there's a clinical diagnosis attached to it that might affect the care, you know, they kind of brush, brush over it. They don't even really look at it. So trying to create that awareness, that understanding of the importance of interoperability and that connection between that, that importance and Commonwealth, that's a multi-pronged effort. It's everything from sort of marketing and sharing with people kind of the stories for where the you know, Commonwealth has made a difference in the lives of, you know, of caregivers and patients. It's regulatory. It's helping to bring the government to put in, to continue the path they started with meaningful use in a way that hopefully utilizes things like Commonwealth, certainly not only Commonwealth, that are, but things like Commonwealth that industry has built, that will help the government to achieve the triple aim that it's trying to continuously push forward, you know, push forward on ever since the Don Berwick base. And, uh, you know, a combination of other tools and techniques and, you know, things we do to make it easier for our members to actually be able to incorporate Commonwealth into the products. We have a whole slew of tricks that we've introduced over the last year. Particularly, there's our Commonwealth Connector program that allows data intermediaries to be able to onboard their customers into Commonwealth, and that gives them a nice clear path to a variety of provider organizations who have chosen, for whatever reason, to not connect through you know, the, their EHR that they use. And in a number of cases, those organizations who don't have the, you know, the EHRs that are part of Commonwealth. And we've also you know, dramatically reduced cost over time, and that's certainly a factor in everybody's equation. Um, and as we have reduced costs, we introduced that we are dramatically re reducing our costs over the coming year by north of 60%, it's going to make a big difference to the adoption and uptake by the larger community. So, Nicole, it's, it sounds like there's a lot of issues. <laughs> uh, we, are, we are well aware of the lot of issues, and we have been tackling them, and the, and the progress and results have been great. I'll point out uh, something that Kashif just mentioned, which is um, uh, it, we have our eyes on all these issues, and it sounds like a lot of them. But our numbers are outstanding. And uh, the, as we knock down these issues, our numbers will continue to be outstanding. To rattle off some of those statistics that Kashif mentioned earlier, you know, we have more than 14,000 clinical sites live, right? I don't know how many providers that exactly translates to. It really kind of depends on how you count providers. But we're talking about hundreds of thousands of caregivers and you know, providers, clinicians, and so on treating more than 60 million unique patients across the U.S. in all the 50 states and, and territories and having exchanged almost 100 million documents so far, clinical documents so far. And, uh, you know, we're just in the early innings over here. Not only that, we are growing at, depending on what statistic you're looking at, we're growing at north of 100% to north of 1,000% across that set of metrics and a bunch of other metrics which we track. So uh, despite the challenges that we are now have a new set of, you know, you know, 
uh, uh, tools to try to address. Up to this point, we've still been experiencing you know, exponential growth, what I call Fibonacci growth, where every, uh, every month you, you are actually doing more exchange than the previous two months combined. And it's, it's really what's happening over here. And um, so I'm really excited for the prospect of continuing to tackle those challenges. So we continue seeing 1,000% growth. I mean, it is, it's a little surreal looking at our numbers sometime, and I'm just excited that we're continuing to do it in a way that's scalable, valuable, and just continuing to have impact across the industry. One last thing I'll point out is, of course, things like Commonwealth, a network of, through which you exchange, and interoperability in general, this is a true statement, it is a lot like telephones, right? The first telephone is not super valuable. Two telephones, you can have, get some value, but the real beauty is when everybody has a telephone, or I should say in today's day and age, a cell phone. And that's the same thing with interoperability. So I'm excited about the numbers, not just because the numbers themselves are exciting and it reflects our growth. I mean, we're a not-for-profit after all, so it's not like I'm about to raise, do a big capital raise. It's the bigger deal that it means that there are more individuals and more caregivers whose lives are going to actually be impacted dramatically because the data is really flowing around them for them in a way, of course, that's obviously secure, private, consented, and all that other good stuff that you need because this is healthcare data. So, all right, let me pause there, but uh, hopefully uh, that's a good sort of uh, summary of some of the things that we see. You know, I know my team certainly sees it in the numbers. What they show me each week is amazing growth and it's really exciting to see it. It, it definitely charges me up and, and knowing that what good we're doing for the providers and patients. And I also think that we had some of those barriers you talked about implementation or marketing, et cetera, you know, getting, getting the word out. I think other barriers that have been there were we didn't have standards, as you guys talked about before. Now we have increase in regulation that is creating an incentive for the organizations to implement. But I also think what's happening to your last point around the numbers is almost a network effect. Or that it's we're at that tipping point, that beginning of the hockey stick. It feels that way when I when I watch the numbers come across the system and our monitoring systems. It's almost like a network effect whereby there's finally enough adopted that we're gaining more interest from others to then also um, use the platform or engage in the exchange of, of documents across Commonwealth. Because now there's that a greater mass on the network, it becomes more valuable, just like your cell phone example. More than one person has a cell phone. How do you guys see the advancements in clinical interoperability supporting payer-provider payer initiatives? Do you feel that this clinical interoperability exchange could streamline communications between the two or drive better outcomes, or is it too early for that? Didn't, should I ask? Should I go first? or Sure, go ahead. I'm still catching my breath after my loss answer. So why don't you go first? <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I figured I'd give you a break. Uh, no, I, I think it's an extremely uh, important topic. Uh, industry at, in, in this interoperability space, is, uh, we've been focused quite a bit on the provider-to-provider -provider and patient-to-provider type of uh, interoperability use cases. That's mostly where the efforts have been um, uh, been sort of amped up in the last five to ten years. There's been some interactions uh, trying to bring uh, the continuum of care, the other care venues that are more the smaller care units, as in long-term care, home care, um, uh, so LTPAC sort of assets, uh, hospices. There's a lot of care that's occurring in those areas, and 
the either the software technology and or the urgency hadn't been there. I'm starting to see in the past couple of years that's starting to spring up. The payer component is critical. I Earlier in the introduction or first question, I did mention that if we can make everybody a part of the process, that will help us as, as a care system provide better care at cheaper costs. And I think the unless the payers have a clinical view of the information, that's not going to be accomplished. Today, the system, especially the payers, are spending a lot of money from anecdotal examples that I come across uh, to get access to the rightful clinical information. So interoperability or digitization can save them a lot of money. There's a lot of screen scraping, uh, calling in to get the patient's charts access. The, what the data, the way they're structured and or what they need isn't sufficient, the plan, the population that they want to seek. So there's, there's nuances that I believe by applying standards and interoperability network means type of things can help actually uh, bring that sector up quite a bit. This is Jonathan. I'd, I'd agree. And, you know, what I would add is, you know, I, I go back to, you know, we had some seminal converse, conversations when we were forming the alliance as to the participation. You know, there was some er, initial early tension in terms of, is this going to be an EHR only thing? Is this going to be open to the entire universe of health IT? Is it going to be opened up to the larger universe of healthcare? And the notion of peer specifically came up in the early days. And, you know, even though we left ourselves open to peers to join us, you know, it was very clearly from our perspective going to be focused only on treatment uh, and the whole network would be focused only on treatment. And a large part of the reason was we were in the early innings and not many providers had yet signed up with us. I mean, we were not even really live as yet. And to build that initial fabric of trust, we needed to ensure that, you know, providers, you know, they wanted to know that we were not connecting with payers, that the rift between payers and providers was still close to the all-time high, which has been slowly getting off of only the last few years. And so, you know, we really didn't make any effort to bring payers into the equation and in focused really very thoroughly on treatment. Even today, and probably forevermore, we are going to do what we need to do to ensure that the trust of the provider organization is high and that they have full transparency into everything that we're doing, even as now we are thinking to go beyond providers to peers. And in fact, that's a very active activity that's happening right now as peers are starting to join the alliance either directly or indirectly. And what's very interesting to me is two things. One is where five years ago, the only reason for a peer to join was there was a very narrow set of business cases for which they would join. They've started to realize that there's a lot of value in the clinical data and there's a lot of value they can provide back to the provider. So it's much more symbiotic than it was from the peer perspective. What's even more interesting is that the number one kind of cause for pulling in peers into the lines today is actually the provider organizations themselves, especially as that secular trend that you know almost launched Commonwealth itself in terms of the move to value-based care. As that's continued and continued and continued, we are at a place now where the provider organizations are themselves accountable for the for the you know they have a lot more skin in the game in terms of the risk and the reward of economically managing patient populations, and they're the ones asking me to pull in the pairs whom they want to work with through the, through the tapestry that we built here, through the network that built over here. 
So, you know, Nicole, you alluded to this earlier, that there's opportunities for more use cases to get built on the network we built. And that's the pair provider relationship and the opportunity to utilize this network we built primarily for treatment and patient access in the past is now absolutely a very sensible, efficient, operationally uh, sound mechanism to enable a greater set of interactions of, for clinical data. And the most important thing for us as an alliance would be to make sure that we are transparent about how part people are participating, how organizations are participating, as well as transparent around every organization's ability to choose to participate or not participate in the various types of activities that we can now enable on the Alliance Network. And I'm really excited about this because again, especially now that the, as that pull through is coming from clinicians, coming from hospital administrators, coming from health system uh, administration, coming from patients themselves, as well as coming from the broader community of peers and others. I think there's a, such a wonderful opportunity to actually be the enabler of the transformation that we're seeing across healthcare it's going to be a great sort of source of momentum and value and maybe even energy for the industry as Commonwealth enables um, uh, these offline transactions as, as, uh, as Kashif mentioned to actually become uh, available and, 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 you know, conducted through, through this network we've built. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, not only to support these care initiatives or decrease the rising costs, et cetera, but also just thinking about, the people who still get in their cars today, drive to doctor's office, pick up a record, and then come back. So this is really just eliminating that, that effort that people go through to collect charts. That's really important. One of the themes from the ONC Interoperability Forum, which just was held a couple of weeks ago in D.C., was that while initiatives like Commonwealth Care Quality have established you know, solid foundations, Really, healthcare interoperability is in its infancy. We've talked a little bit about this. I mean, you shared some numbers, but how would you both react to that statement from the ONC forum? I think there's a lot of progress that's been made. Uh, we have millions of records being exchanged, um, in, in, and I'm, I, I know this for a fact because I, uh, I am seeing those in my clients' workflows and, and other vendors' provider workflows that I'm, I, I'm actually able to observe that there is a tremendous amount of data exchange. It is, the, as I alluded for before, the timing. Um, is it happening in every provider setup? Probably not. That's the timing thing where we need to make sure that uh, the ones who aren't uh, on the network or any network or don't have the tools to bring them along. I, in my opinion, the networks are really key to um, the broad interoperability. I have examples where other countries are taking the similar approach. They're just learning from our example since we're sort of the trailblazers, uh, but doing it, they're just taking it from us and doing it better, maybe in a different approach. Uh, like, for example, UK, I, I know, is, um, and I'm aware they're starting to work on these regional sort of care management aspects, which is exchange first and then build the, the cohorts for that region's population to study the patterns, behaviors, and then the, and provide them care based on those patterns or, or prevent the care based on those patterns. The first step to that is really interoperability. And then connect those regions to each other to create a national framework. 
which is, if I may <laughs> remind you, kind of reminds you of the Tefka's concept of QHANs. And, uh, you know, we, we are starting more from top down. Their approach is to say, oh, maybe if that's how we're going to go build it, then maybe we need to start the QHAN like things that connect to each other and kind of form a network. So I, I think it, it's good that the 21st Century Cures Act and the the outcomes of that, TEFCA and other things, and data blocking ruling is actually going to enforce the, the, the topic. It's going to inf- in make sure that everyone participates and does. So it becomes more of a fluid, turnkey, interoperability, a utility concept. How this becomes a utility it does take time. You, you hear examples about electricity, banking, airlines. You have to look at those industries when that journey started and how critical was that for that transaction to flow. I know losing $10 is way different than losing a limb or, or a life. <laughs> so you can't equate my records with really the banking industry, but you could equate the governance and the regulation to make sure that they can follow the same standard of currencies and we can follow the same standard of data and get to the similar outcomes just looking at those examples. I think it's a little bit of an understatement to say that it's really not quite totally solved yet. I mean, it is definitely making great progress. I do think there's a good news, which in my opinion, that we've reached a tipping point. I think you, Jitin, both alluded to this in your previous commentary. It will continue to see, we'll continue to see more providers because there's a network effect. There's more people coming in my peers, your peers are telling people that, hey, you need to be on the network so we can create more value and have more nodes and endpoints. Uh, we'll also have more use cases to offer, of course. And that would that extends. And in some of this commentary from different um, you, you know, industry leaders and pundits is really kind of talking about one or the other use case. I mean, to some degree, we have um, 700,000 or so plus providers using the direct standard today where they can communicate with each other when they need to communicate. And similarly, I think the next turn is the network effect of where you could access records by virtue of the Commonwealth, which is connected with the care quality and other maybe smaller regional networks that can connect to each other. That really is how you have to have everyone wired in where the records are. Then the rest you could apply as CDA or a fire standard, those are more, in my opinion, means and methodologies to transport. But you kind of have to have that governance in the structure to say, here's a here's a highway that that everyone should uh, piggyback uh, to communicate with. And I think those networks uh, are able to provide us that today. Uh, so it, it, I, I can absolutely say that it isn't turnkey today. Uh, but we do have a good foundation uh, that's laid. That's in my opinion. I have a complementary opinion. Actually, it really builds off of a point Kashif made around the sort of the distribution of exchange across the country. Nicole, you started this by asking us about the, you know, that that ONCS assessment is that we are in the 
in the infancy of interoperability. I, I'm not a big fan of the word infancy here because, you know, actually all three of us are parents. So we know that an infant starts off with everything sort of undeveloped from, you know, mental to physical to all, you know, all the limbs, everything is sort of undeveloped, a slightly bigger brain, a bigger head than everything else. But a baby is still a baby and not really functional in any dimension and kind of grows and grows and gets, <laughs> gets control of its faculties and grows up more and it grows up into an adult who then has better control of the mental and emotional faculties and all that jazz. And that really does not de describe interoperability in the US, right? If you look at interoperability in the US, it really follows, you know, what Kashif was saying and a, uh, a quote by William Gibson that I, I used to use, uh, utilize a lot before when I was at ONC, and I, I think it actually applies over here again, which is, you know, the future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. And that's the reality. Um, that is the, the infancy, quote unquote, that we are faced with right now. There is tremendous amounts of very high quality interoperability happening in pockets around the country. There are things like Commonwealth that have enabled sort of very large pockets of very high quality interoperability. And even then, we have things to work on for sure. I'm using high quality there, you know, to, to describe certain aspects of it. And there are other aspects where we need to, we do need to grow. Maybe we are ourselves in our own infancy. But the reality is, it's really when you start bringing these things together, stitching them together in a sensible way and diffusing the value that is being created more broadly across the industry. In other words, for Commonwealth, it's about getting more organizations connected to us, as well as connecting to other organizations who are doing a great job out there. You know, the carry qualities of the world, some of those, you know, fairly high quality HIEs that, that do, certainly do exist out there in the industry. It's when you bring these things together that you go from where we are today to a place where we say, you know what, we've actually solved a number of key important problems in interoperability. I don't think you can solve everything in interoperability in any stretch of time. That's like saying we've, we've figured out the internet. I mean, that's, that's not a thing that happens, right? You, you, you get to a new level of functionality and expectation, and then there's a brand new level of functionality and expectation you expect because uh, the world has moved on and it, re and it requires you to continuously innovate. So there is no end in mind that we will ever get through. If that's the notion that time is infinite, then yes, you know, we're going to be at our infancy at all points. But from the perspective of does this really work? Is it really undeveloped? Well, it only really depends on kind of what silo, what geography, you know, what aspect of interoperability you're looking at. Uh, I would contend that there are several aspects of interoperability that are fully mature. They're just not broadly enough distributed. And that's where things like TEFCA, things like the Commonwealth Carry Quality Collaboration, other such things like the Commonwealth Connector Program, and other such things. These types of collaborations and purposeful opportunities to diffuse the innovations and really bring the larger community to participate at the same level, a same increasing floor of interoperability. I mean, that's how I think we get to maturity here. And I don't think that is actually very far away. I don't think it is a question of infancy to adulthood. I think it's a, it's a matter of, of stitching together the right, um, of, of stitching together the, you know, the vibrant cloths of fabric that we have across the country. You know, what can you tell us about the upcoming ruling that you've been keeping up with? I mean, Shoot, with your background and history with ONC, I think there's nobody closer to understanding how those regulations are formed. And then I know that you keep in close contact with all those the, the folks who are creating the regulation. 
what are your thoughts about what's coming up? What are the upcoming ones? What are the most important ones to you in terms of the alliance and increasing that network effect that we're all seeing? You know, I think there are a number of important regulations that are out there right now. From ONC, we saw the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, that's TEFCA draft two come out earlier this week. In fact, we heard about their selection for one of the key components for enabling that uh, framework. That's the, the recognized coordinating entity or RCE that is uh, going to help uh, design the rules of the road and that common agreement that it really does what I said earlier, which is stitches together these organizations who are enabling interoperability occur across the country. So that's one rule. That TEFCA rule is an important one. The second one is the information blocking rule, which also came out in draft form earlier this spring and really makes it very clear, actually, and in my opinion, maybe maybe verbosely, but certainly with clearly articulates that any organization that is not sharing data for you know a, a clearly defined set of purposes that enable better clinical care and clinical efficiency and sort of operational and payment efficiency you know those organizations which are holding back are going to over time be deemed as doing something illegal. And that makes it really clear that interoperability is no longer going to be a luxury or something you may get to or may not get to. You know, it's something that you will be required to do. And my hope is that, you know, that regulation in tandem with the first one uh, on TEFCA inspires the industry, given that there's a couple of years before they come into effect. I'm hopeful that it creates a tailwinds and inspires the industry to really take the steps that are needed to be able to be part of this national interoperability fabric. There are lots of opportunities, lots of places where every provider all across the country can go to be able to get itself in a position to be able to share data and benefit from the sharing of data in taking care of their patients. And, uh, and also addressing the other needs of the day-to-day life of the business of healthcare. And to the extent that those things exist out there, I think this uh, set of regulations put some pressure on them to actually go out and utilize those things. And, you know, as, as Commonwealth, we're trying our best to make sure that our tools and our capabilities and our partners are out there and available to the provider and other community, other parts of the healthcare community, since they can participate, the provider, the payer, the patient, and the public health, and so on and so forth. And uh, I'm sure the rest of the industry is as well. So I think those are the two biggest rules. The hard part, Nicole, is the fact that anytime you are driving uh, action through regulation, there are two overarching areas of concern. One is the uh, the notion that because it's being regulated, people will do the minimum necessary to check a box in order to meet their regulation, even when there is a possibility that instead of just checking the box, they actually take thoughtful steps, they could actually gain a lot more out of it. But because of other pressures that they feel, particularly time and resource pressures, that they will just try to check a box you know, be able to say that they're connected and, and interoperable and so on. And there are a lot of ways to do that without actually enabling substantial data exchange. And so, you know, that's one aspect of and that's why the regulation has to be careful. The other aspect that is uh, always a danger is actually almost a converse. It's this concern that the regulation itself becomes too prescriptive. If it's too prescriptive of how people connect and what steps they specifically take and what standards they specifically specifically meet, 
there's a balance there. There's a balance to it. There's, there's some balance where they have to be prescriptive so that people can actually work together. But there's a balance to which it has to be given the opportunity to evolve and grow. Because the thing about regulations are, from the time that they're announced to the time they're effective, the world has moved on, especially in technology. By the time TEFCA in its current iteration becomes a reality two to three years from now, nobody will be utilizing the standards that have been currently articulated in the in the uh, regulation so it's important that governor the government get that right and it seems like they have their eye on the ball there and they're aware of it having uh, having tripped on that particular uh, rug before um, but uh, it, it's it is something that we still concern ourselves about particularly as a you know a technology organization there's a third rule out there uh, I will I'll, I'll defer that more to Kashif if, if in case he is closer to it than I am but because I'm not super close to it and that's a rule that came from CMS. And that CMS rule, uh, I'm forgetting the specific name of the rule because I'm not super close to it, but it did have some aspects of it that related to interoperability and particularly driving the adoption of event notifications. You know, again, I won't speak to the rule itself because it, it has other aspects to it um, that you know, may or may not you know work out well for provider organizations. I'm just I'm just not uh, close enough to it. That being said, to the extent that again puts wind in the sails of enabling notifications. In other words, care providers being informed when patients have, are having an event or have had an event that could uh, affect their overall health and care. You know, again, we're very we're very very uh, big proponents of it. Oh, and this is not to forget one you know one obvious rule that came out you know a little bit earlier this year, and that was the next phase of what was formerly known as meaningful use and is now named, known as promoting interoperability from CMS. And to the extent that there is greater emphasis on interoperability and diminished emphasis on simply the capture of data that actually subtracts from the patient provider experience, uh, I'm very much in favor, and I think you know we're we're all very much in favor of seeing that happen. So let me stop there because it's it's you know obviously any one of these uh, rules could take up a, a whole podcast worth of discussion, but uh, hopefully this gives a, a fairly good overview of at least in my opinion the the four big rules, the two ONC rules, the two CMS rules that are going to drive interoperability in the coming couple of years. Yeah. Definitely a podcast or a series of podcasts. Those rulings are like a thousand page each. <laughs> or yes, exactly. Well, exactly. Material for a long time. Kashif, any, any comments to that? Maybe the CMS rule that, that you mentioned? No, I, I, I agree. The, these rules, uh, you know, lead me to believe that you're, you should tell every vendor that you're interoperable or obsolete. If you're not, caught up with the program, it's going to be very difficult for uh, for a lot of these uh, folks to, to operate. And I think that part of the advancing interoperability rule from CMS uh, has a lot of hybrid or common set of things that uh, what ONC is promoting and what, what the CMS is suggesting. We're in a good position, good spot, in, in my, my view, with the Commonwealth Health Alliance and its direction towards complying with certain certain these things and uh, offering our, our members and participants the, uh, some of the guidance there would be a great thing. Uh, I do think that, that would, these rules and guidance would be, um, would be good for the industry to push this uh, further. Uh, there is a balance that has to be stricken and we have to keep in mind that we burden uh, with too much too soon 
uh, could, could also become detrimental. And that problem is absolutely real, what Jin just described, that if you put too much, people try to just do the checkbox. And that's where the incentive conversation goes. And to loop back into your question earlier, why some of the provider organizations haven't really enabled or activated or joined the network, that, that creates sort of a dictated barrier to ask everybody that you must be on it tomorrow. Do the tools and the circumstances allow for them to do that? That's a different question. So I think as the governing bodies provide these rules and we as the industry leaders and thinkers make them simpler, we need to keep in mind that that aspect on the provider and the burdens are actually balanced out. But Overall, I think it's it's a great thing. It would definitely push the industry to make that turnkey thing that I want it to be. Uh, the Q hints and the having a governance body on top of them. And then uh, if the CMS is aligning some of those prerogatives to be sort of the common denominators between the two, that is that is great. And I, I think Tefka's notion of giving people a single on-ramp uh, to interoperability is is really really a positive thing. So overall, I think it is good. It's just the balance has to be there, and we have to make sure that we utilize uh, some of the existing infrastructures and existing foundation that we've laid, and not go try to reinvent the wheel completely. Because there's a lot of things in the foundation that exist that in the private sector though that, that those are very effective. We do not want to discount those. So I, I do think keeping those in mind, I, I think it's a, it's a good thing uh, to press forward. Otherwise, I th- if you leave it completely on the choice of people, um, the timing to adopt becomes really um, kind of uh, long. And you want to you wanna make sure that we do it easy, simple, and fast. Yeah, really keep the momentum going and, and build on that exactly. network effect. That's happening. Hey guys, we've talked a little bit about the future of interoperability, but I want to drill into that a little bit further. And so, Jitin, maybe it's more for you. And as we look into the future and we look forward, what could we expect from Conwell? How do you feel that Conwell, what services capabilities is Conwell building to support these new use cases or to further drive adoption? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if I think about Commonwealth and its various dimensions, uh, and you know, keeping in mind as well where regulation is, the regulations we just talked about are going to take us. There are probably a couple of dimensions. You know, first is you know who's participating in data exchange, and today, the cornerstone of Commonwealth are the relatively large. EHR vendor organizations. They have been the cornerstone. They've been the innovators and founders and the driving force behind Commonwealth and and in, in other organizations as well, uh, like Terry Quality, for instance, are are now you know increasingly close friends. What I think is going to happen on the dimension of who's participating is we're going to continue seeing the rest of their long tail participate, especially as Commonwealth introduced the connector program that allows a variety of intermediaries and on-ramps to be able to connect to us and uh, create, uh, you know, broad value for their their uh, customers who are 
the long tail of EHR and HIT vendors um, and provider organizations for that matter. I think we're gonna see us continue to extend across the health IT spectrum. In a related kind of dimension, but not health IT specifically, but health and care, I think we're going to see a broader set of participants participate. We've seen more and more recently, especially over the last month or so, we've had provider organizations, payer organizations, state and uh, state agency organizations reach out to us to indicate that they and strongly they want to participate. They really want to make sure that as interoperability continues to grow. Uh, and Commonwealth continues to lead that charge that they are a part of it and that they figure out sooner rather than later how to integrate into it and how to ensure that Commonwealth uh, itself continues to evolve in a way that solves a, a broader and broader set of needs. And that's that brings us to the second dimension in terms of the needs. The needs that we are, you know, we started out with was specifically in treatment and there's uh, both a a, 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 still a runway to go in, in tackling treatment. And it's always going to be at the center of what we do. And so, you know, continue to focus on enabling better treatment, better care of individuals uh, across acute, ambulatory, and now more recently across post-acute and other settings, home health settings as well. And I think now we're going to see other types of such uses as well. We certainly have enabled patient access. You know, we enabled that years ago. And I think we're going to start seeing that generate momentum in the coming year. Uh, we talked about peer types of transactions, and they have a, a gamut of use cases, everything from operational to payment related to actually uh, supplementary clinical uh, use cases that can actually be helpful in you know, think, figuring out things like gaps in care and the like. And I think we'll start seeing those. And then we'll see non-HIPAA types of use cases emerge as well. And you know, we're going to be in increasingly careful around these, obviously. But there's a lot of cost driven in healthcare because of the process of trying to find paper charts for individuals across the continuum. And as health insurance and life, oh, sorry, health insurance is HIPAA, I mean, life insurance and disability insurance companies and other types of organizations try to participate in healthcare, and they have been, but very inefficiently and at the collective cost of all of us, we're going to try to improve the experience there as well. Of, uh, of being able to share your data. I, for one, to take a quick you know, tangent, when I was applying for life insurance when we had our first child, it was not a fun process or an efficient process for me to try to get my health records to my life insurance company. It was completely ridiculous, actually, to put it in layman terms. And I just don't think that that's, that is a good uh, model that enables us to ensure that people are really getting the services that they want, you know, whether health and care related, like life insurance sort of is, or something else entirely. And uh, so that's a dimension in terms of what purposes are we addressing. And then there's a last dimension that I, you know, I think about, particularly in terms of where Commonwealth is going, and that is the kind of modes of communication, right? Interoperability, like I said earlier in this podcast, is a little bit like IT, right? Uh, but the dimension I'm using here is like, you know, you think about IT, it goes from everything from, are my phones working? To what software programs am I using on my computer to generate, you know, multivariate analysis on some important data analysis, you know, data function that I'm performing right now, right? There's a lot broad Kind of spectrum of things covered by the word IT. And there's a slightly narrower but still broad spectrum of things covered by interoperability. And today, up to this point, Commonwealth has cared most about 
what I call person-centered interoperability. In other words, I ask for a person's information and Commonwealth helps me to find that information across the continuum. And uh, that's, you know, it's sometimes also called pull-based functionality, except that ours really does start with the individual first, as opposed to pulling from a, a single location, uh, unlike some other organizations. So it's, it's this notion of being able to find that patient's data, find is probably the operative word there, and then pull it that we've focused on. We've already announced that we're moving into the dimension where we are actually in, enabling notifications so that if a patient has an event that their caregivers can be notified. And this is huge, right? There are situations where if a patient, for example, entered the emergency department of a hospital, the person who can actually provide the most help there is not just that ED physician. It's actually their, you know, the, the person at the skilled long-term facility where, you know, that's where the patient actually spent their time before getting to the ED or that home health uh, social worker who regularly checks in on the patient or that health coach or that parent or, or even the child for that matter. It's there are a variety of different stakeholders from whom the opportunity to influence change of care um, comes to notification. And again, just as on the other dimensions, there's a variety of different stakeholders, a variety of different purposes for which notifications can be extremely valuable. So I see us in the immediate term evolving from going from query and retrieving to going to event notifications, what's sometimes also called pub sub. And I see us over time actually continuing down to other types of services. Like I would be shocked if sometime within the next few years, Commonwealth was not you know, pro probably partnering with others in the industry to enable a more thoughtful push of data from one clinical or non-clinical location to the other. Again, making sure we have the right uh, checks and balances given the nature of the data that we're enabling the, the liquidity of. But I think that's going to be a very real thing because today the ability to push data from one location to the other it's a very checkered experience. Some people are having tremendous success in some silos and some regions, and others are really, really struggling. As far as they're concerned, it doesn't actually exist in any useful fashion. And so again, Commonwealth has the opportunity, especially as a consortium of a variety of different players, vendors and providers included, to actually create push-based experiences that are meaningful, thoughtful, and actually helpful to the end user. So along all those dimensions, Nicole, I see us evolving. As you can see, that's a that's a broad, you know, each one of those dimensions is a long runway. So there's a lot to come and it'll just be up to Commonwealth leadership to ensure that we are tackling the next big thing that we can get the most you know, bang for the buck. Yeah, I can't agree more. And really, you know, stop looking forward to those notifications, you know, helping to bring that pertinent information up to the top for providers. There's just so much information out there. How do you make sure you're getting the right information at the most critical times? Not to name, you know, the rest of the, the capabilities you mentioned. So, Kasha, if I have a question for you, where do you see interoperability headed in the future, especially from a provider organizations? You know, are they looking for notifications? What are they looking for? Um, absolutely. There's, the providers are uh, interested in the additional use cases. Notifications are absolutely instrumental for, you know, you've got, I've got a, a client here that, is a children's hospital in town where sometimes the behaviors, the society behaviors are that if the child's acting up, they just take them to the ED. That costs the system as well as uh, probably derails the care for the really needed um, patients than to somebody that thinks that 
hey, if my child is uncontrollable, uncontrollable, you become the babysitter isn't really the right use of the emergency department. People uh, have different personalities. If something you know, is wrong, you have something minor, people may end up in the ED. A primary care guy needs to know why. Or in, in the acuity, they also need to know why so they can continue to follow up. In care management use cases, it's very important. In the highs and lows and the alerts on the results, you know, as we move into this caring in the community model from four walls of the either a hospital or a doc office, it is becoming really essential for us to connect the care now. And I think care is going to be managed in more in the continuum, more in the community than it is or ever has been in the past. And you're going to rely on these community records or the community chart, community notification services, care management aspects, the care plans, a lot more than in the past we have. Partly just the evolution. I mean, I think with the ACA and, and the meaningful use and those kind of initiatives, we've digitized, you know, over 80 to 90% of this, these care venues into more of the digital means from paper-based yellow folders. Now it, it really begs the industry bags to make sure those records are connected and we are able to move information with the patient with the, so their care process is continued. And uh, the notification is an essential use case. There's other use cases, you know, the images are kept into more of the lock boxes today because of the sheer volume, the, the speed of internet was, the bandwidth, the file sizes. Now we can watch the TV on, on a small mobile phone via wireless network um, on a Wi-Fi and or cellular data. So they, it kind of tells you that, that those data packets are much easier um, with the given bandwidth to move than they have been in the past. So these images aren't necessarily going to be sitting in the lock boxes any further. There's additional use cases in the care management aspect and editable care plan that's just, you know, was constituted here in this care venue, but also needs to go into the home care and now be able to read and write into that is, is an important facet. We already are seeing those use cases pop up, people, providers and patients in that matter, asking for those use cases, uh, industries demanding for those use cases. And, you know, back to Jitin's point on some of the communication modes are going to evolve. So IHE profiles to CDA to uh, FIRE or TCPIP, whatever, it doesn't really matter because those should be plumbings. The user should only be able to turn the switch on, that the lights turn on, not really be interested in how and where the windmill's running, how the electricity is boarded over and the wiring goes into the building to bring that electricity in the format of light. So I think there's a tremendous amount of possibilities how this digital information will flow given these use cases. And I, th I think the, the, the network and some of these communication methodologies are really the, uh, the foundation for that. Is there any final thoughts, key learnings that you've had while you've been at Commonwealth, calls to action for the listeners that we have that you guys would like to end with? I would say join and use the network near you. It's like the, the store next door to you. Connect with Commonwealth. Go connect through care quality. But connect and share. You need. We need to be adopted 
and beyond the network to get the benefits from these additional use cases we speak of and or the, the next things in the regulatory uh, charters that is going to come. We really have to be on these networks. Let's don't sit back on the data. Give them the rightful data. Uh, follow and enforce the standards. Clean up the data. No, not, no one likes the gibberish, right? I mean, nobody appreciates that, uh, especially the docs that have limited time with the, with the patients and they want to make sure they focus on the patient, not, not trying to figure out the, the German to English translation on the records that we uh, generally just <laughs> sometimes throw at them. So it is important. Lastly, I would say interoperability is a journey. It's a marathon. If you're looking for a 100-mile sprint, get out now and let the rightful individuals make the progress that needs to be made. Uh, use these vehicles that are available to us and, and build on those. This, this is Jatan, I'll, I'll echo that. I mean, if you're uh, a provider organization, you know, you should, be, you should be asking yourself, how do I turn live on common level? What's my EHR vendor doing for me? What do they offer? You'd be surprised how many times a provider organizations come to me and say, oh, you know, we want to get on Commonwealth too, but you don't know how to do it. And like, what EHR do you use? And they'll name an EHR that's actually live with Commonwealth. And I give them the three steps they need to take. And, you know, two weeks later, they'll call back and say, yeah, we're live. We, we didn't know we could do it that easily. Um, and sometimes it's a matter of, no, actually the EHR is not live, in which case, get them to talk to us. Um, calling us is free uh, for who anybody. <laughs> Just reach out to us so that we can figure out if there's a pathway for Commonwealth for you. But I agree with Kashif's point. I mean, the big point here is around interoperability. It is going to be table stakes for everybody in the future. Uh, and in the And by the future, I really do mean I actually probably mean now, but it's going to soon enough, it's going to become a requirement everywhere. And the reality is those who are ready to take advantage of it are those who are going to get into it early to see how it works for them, to see how it can, they can make it work for them. It's a little bit like the internet. Um, you could you could have pretended that the internet doesn't exist for a very long time, uh, or you can get your feet wet with it and kind of learn how the internet is going to work to make your organization more productive, more operationally efficient, more valuable over time. And it's it, interoperability in, in healthcare is very much the same thing. So again, echoing that point, just go out and make it happen. It's, it's probably very easy for you to do. It's, and uh, it's, it's certainly accessible. And uh, it, it requires a modicum of looking into kind of what you have and, and, and how to get there. And uh, again, we're always happy to help. Um, whatever path we can uh, steer you towards so that we can just enable the health data to follow the patient everywhere. Oh, thank you, Jen. Thank you, Kashif. Great answers. And really, thank you for your time today. I would say another source or resource is checking out CommonwealthAlliance.org. There's just tons of information, Jen, that you've built there over the time with the members. And you know, I think it's it's a really great source of information. Last thoughts I would say as well is Kashif Jitten is always, always a joy to collaborate with you guys, with both of you and with the members to advance interoperability. And again, thank you so much for this time today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for yep. having Thank you for having us. Pleasure. You've been listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. For more information on this and other healthcare IT topics, please visit changehealthcare.com. Don't forget to check the show notes for useful links to related resources and our contact information. Thanks for listening and have a great day.